This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of the famous napper Rip Van Winkle, or we'll learn all about the benefits of leaving your family to go drink and bowl with strangers in the woods. If you want to know how to literally make friends, the creature this week can help you out with that. To make this inch-tall, lifelong pal, all you need is a bottle and the blood of a murdered man. This is Myths and Legends, episode 159, Bad Dad. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. And others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story isn't technically folklore. It's the story of Rip Van Winkle by American author Washington Irving, published in 1819. There's a reason it's on this podcast, though, because it's basically a fairy tale that's believed to be inspired by some fairly common stories from folklore. That, and I think Rip has had it too good for too long. You'll see what I mean. Irving follows some of the same tropes and outlines, to the point that this feels like a story from folklore. For those of you that somehow don't know the central premise behind Rip Van Winkle, I won't ruin it, and we'll talk about the folklore tradition after the main story today. Rip's family had been in the Catskill Mountains, in upstate New York, since before New York was even New York, when it was the Dutch colony of New Netherlands, with its capital, New Amsterdam. As we've talked about before on this podcast, naming things is difficult. The Swedish crown had a colonial presence in North America for about 10 minutes, until the ancestors of Rip Van Winkle's family stormed Fort Christina and put an end to that. Yes, Rip Van Winkle's ancestors were brave, enterprising and active people who made positive contributions to their society. Rip Van Winkle was nothing like his ancestors. That's not to say Rip was a bad guy. He wasn't a bad guy at all. He was a simple, good-natured fellow, meek and kind, a good neighbor and an obedient husband. It was Tuesday and Rip was out running errands, but first he had to stop off because the kids in their little Dutch settlement were playing ball and when kids ask you to play ball, I mean, come on, you play ball. After ball, one of the little boys was having a hard time getting his kite in the air. So Rip helped him out with that. Sitting on the ground, the kids begged him, begged him for a story. So he obliged. The quick pickup game of ball turned into a three-hour-long stop, but they were only going to be that age once. He thought. He didn't actually know many of their names. Taking his leave of the kids... Rip wandered into their village, where, after passing King George in, the gunsmith flagged him down. His fouling gun was repaired. Rip told the man he'd have the money to pay for the gun later on that day. But the man only laughed. He knew Rip was good for it. Take the gun. He'd settle up with the missus for the sum. His gun slung over his shoulder, and his dog, named Wolf, at his feet, Rip saw something on the edge of town. A squirrel. He readied his gun, but then realized he couldn't very well shoot in the middle of the village. He traipsed off into the forest to catch a quick snack for later. Three hours after, Rip emerged from the forest with a yawn, sleep still in his eyes. He had sat down for a rest after the hunt, and he must have dozed off. Ambling down through town, he smiled at the young wives, who were always so nice to him. 
He stopped off to help them with husking corn or lifting a sack of meal inside, even going to the store for one to pick up something or other for a recipe she was in the middle of. Old Bill was building a fence, and Rip stopped to help him stack stones, and he helped Ebenezer catch his horses for a ride down to New York the following morning. The chill of an October night on the air, and the sun starting to melt into the trees, Rip decided he better call it a day. He and Wolf went home. Deep in thought about nothing in particular, Rip walked on in his front door and sat down at the table for dinner. Wait a second, Rip said as he sat down at the table. It was then that he was aware that the whole room was staring at him. I was supposed to pick up supplies from town, Rip said. His wife nodded. And? And pick up my gun, Rip said with a smile. Got that one. So where is it? Rip felt his back. Huh, you know what? You took a nap in the forest and left it? Just like all the other times? Rip's wife remarked. Hey, at least I shot a squirrel for dinner, so I technically did bring home dinner. You're welcome. Okay, his wife said, looking at the nothing in his hands or on his belt. And where's that? Rip looked at his belt. Oh, right. He'd set it down when he was helping Bill. The dogs probably got to it by now. Huh. Well, he did remember that he needed to get that board for the cow's pen to replace the rotted one. His wife, Dame Van Winkle, was taken aback. Oh, wow. He got it then? Rip shook his head. No, he remembered that he was supposed to get it. He actually just saw the cow walking by the window. The board must have finally rotted through today. His wife clenched her fists and stormed out of the house. But Rip said the cow could graze. He wouldn't get far. Yeah, graze in the neighbor's cabbage patch so they could buy more cabbage that they wouldn't get to eat. The wife shouted back before she was out of earshot. Rip shrugged and lumbered over to the cupboard. He turned to Rip Jr., just about nine years old, and the newborn baby Judith. White bread sound good for dinner? Ah, he was just kidding. It was all they had, so it didn't really matter if it sounded good. When Rip's wife came in minutes later, having caught the cow, she sat down, exasperated, next to Rip at the table. She would run to the store in town tomorrow, the town being a quarter mile away. Rip kissed her on the cheek. Thanks. She was the best. The wife went to the cupboard. Where, where was the rest of the bread? Rip looked down to his dog. Wolf. Oh. Rip's wife groaned and went to pick some carrots and cabbage for her own dinner. Now, Washington Irving is kind of uncomfortably clear where he stands on Rip's marriage. It was all the wife's fault for being a vicious, nagging shrew. According to Irving, a tart temper never mellows with age. A sharp tongue grows keener by constant use, and no courage can withstand the ever-during and all-besetting terrors of a woman's tongue. This isn't the only nagging wife character in his works, either. I don't know, I, I think he probably had some issues he needed to work through. I say that because, in my opinion, the wife absolutely has a point. I would be so annoyed if, in pre-revolutionary America, my partner was hunting and fishing for fun instead of doing the things we needed to survive 
and when he did help out, he almost exclusively helped out other people. His own family lived on a farm he had let get overrun by weeds and decay, leaving just a small plot of corn, potatoes, carrots, and cabbage. The eldest child, Rip Jr., lived in rags and proudly proclaimed that he wanted to be just like dad. And Dame Van Winkle, as she's called in the story, couldn't even confide with any of her friends. They were all on Rip's side because as he walked through the village, he would stop and help them out with any task, no matter how small, while his family sat hungry at home. They saw the dilapidated farm and unruly, lazy kids. They declared that it was the wife's fault. That was her domain, and it couldn't be Rip's fault. He was great, everyone loved Rip. Rip was roused from sleep and looked at his wife as she had just finished explaining all that to him. Oh wait, were they still fighting? <sighs> Sorry, he had fallen asleep. Ugh, she was always nagging him. Was it so much for him to just want to enjoy his golden years in peace? You're 29, Dame Van Winkle yelled before rolling over. Uh, the life expectancy in 1780 colonial America is just 38, Rip yelled back. Look it up on the single newspaper that comes through here once every two months. Those statistics are weighed heavily by infant mortality. You make it past childhood, you're fine, Rip. Dame Van Winkle muttered. What was that? Rip asked. Nothing. Good night. The years went on and nothing really changed. The weeds encroached further into the farm, taking the place of the cabbages and carrots. Rip found a community of intelligent men who sat in the shade of the large tree in front of King George's Inn, where they traded in the new ideas of the day. Rip didn't so much as speak, but just smoked and napped, but his tobacco smelled nice, so they let him stay. Of course, then his wife found the spot where he was slacking off and doing nothing all day, and whenever he was supposed to be doing boring, trivial housework to survive, like tilling the land to keep them alive or selling what meager goods they produced to pay the mortgage on their farm, she would come and nag him. It was one day, when he saw her coming, that he excused himself from the men who hadn't quite gotten his name and slipped in the store of the gunsmith. The man needed payment up front now for any work for the Van Winkle family, and Rip pressed half the money in his hands. All he had left. He pointed to his wife, who was coming down the road. She would cover the rest. He laughed, snatched the gun, some powder and rounds, and took off. Outside, in the dirt street, Dame Van Winkle yelled after her husband, telling him to stop. Did he have the money from the basket of produce she sent him with this morning? Rip paused. Oh yeah, where did he set that down? Ah, he'd worry about it later. He'd bring home a buck tonight, and she'd forget all about this extreme public embarrassment. Dame Van Winkle was about to grab her husband by the ear and drag him back home, but the gunsmith stepped from his store, demanding his payment. Rip snickered and ducked between two houses. The soft crunch of the early autumn leaves was the only thing following him and his dog. We'll find Rip Van Winkle starting his famous nap, but that will be right after this.
you, uh, you need help with that? Rip asked the strange little man that was sweating under the massive keg he was trying to carry. He didn't answer because of said massive keg, and Rip looked at his dog, who gave him a look that said, what do you want me to say? I'm a dog. Rip bounded over to help the little guy with all that alcohol. It had started out as a pretty normal day of being chased by your wife into the woods, but it had taken a weird turn when, at the top of a mountain, looking down into a shadowy glen, one that he had never been down before, Rip heard, Rip Van Winkle, Rip Van Winkle, coming from the forest in a cheer. Almost immediately after that, a little guy came out of the trees. He didn't seem to notice Rip, but Rip noticed him, mainly because he was wearing the clothes of the Dutch colonists, 100 years old. When the colony of New York was known as New Netherlands, he didn't know of anyone living this far out into the forest, but Rip was smart enough to know that he didn't know a lot of things, so he kept his mouth shut and continued hefting the keg. When a whole group of little Dutch guys raise their flagons of liquor when you arrive at their forest bowling alley, cracking open the keg and handing Rip a flagon of his own, Rip could have asked who they were or what they were doing or why they cheered his name earlier, or he could just shut up and drink. Rip chose the latter. It was a whole group of guys like the original one, all dressed in an old Dutch style and all a good six inches shorter than Rip. They were playing nine pins and for all the games and liquor, they were melancholic with grave faces. Rip, however, was grinning. He had been dreading going home to his angry wife, but each flagon of alcohol chipped away at that dread until Rip couldn't even remember why she would be mad at him in the first place. She probably loved it that he abandoned her to go drink in the woods with strangers. When it came to free booze, the story says that Rip was a naturally thirsty fella. And soon the night began to get hazy. There was singing, by Rip, and dancing, also Rip, and drinking games, that Rip played by himself. The strange little guys just wanted to drink quietly and bowl, which they did, not really participating in Rip's merriment, as he got progressively more ripped, ha, huh? but also not really caring if he had their liquor. All in all, Rip had an awesome time. He assumed. He woke up on that hilltop where he had first seen the little guy hefting the keg. Insanely bright sun? Check. Pounding head? Check. Yep, it had been a party. He heard a babbling brook below and knew that he should get some water. Rip whistled for his dog, Wolf, but the animal didn't come to him. He laid his hand down and found his gun, but it wasn't. The barrel was rusted through, and the wood had rotted. Rip narrowed his eyes. He knew what this was. It was a long con. They knew his name. They knew that he wandered the forest to get away from his justifiably angry wife. They had brought a whole keg out here, and all the nine-pin games... All 15 or 20 of them got him drunk to get their hands on his cheap gun. These guys, these guys were good. Rip gripped a stick as he readied himself to confront the con men, huddling just outside their little hideout where they played their games. He gritted his teeth and burst through, yelling out an aha. And he slammed his face into a stone wall, just a few inches past the leaves. He looked up, it wasn't a valley, it it was a solid stone wall. Ow. He searched all around, but could not find the area where he had been drinking with those crazy little guys. He began to get panicked, and he whistled for his dog. He figured he'd just sit down by a stream and wait. Wolf was too much like him, 
too prone to wandering off or getting lost in what he was doing. He would come, though, eventually. Wolf always came running. Except this time, he didn't. Rip bit his lip. That made him nervous. Wolf was always by his side, always. And then he smiled. Maybe Wolf lost track of him when he wandered off drunk. Maybe Wolf went back home. Oh, but Dame Van Winkle. He ran away from her in the village yesterday and didn't come home last night. Just imagining the sound of her voice made him cringe. Still, he had to go home. This was a weird day. The village he had lived less than a quarter mile from his entire life was now nearly a city with rows of houses and, and dozens more inhabitants, none of which Rip recognized. Then he looked at his family home. He didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but he was pretty sure the roof wasn't caving in the day before and his fields were bad, but now they were completely weeds. He opened the door to his home and found nothing but emptiness rot. On the plus side, his wife wasn't yelling at him. So, eh, this was a draw. After Rip walked through town, the proprietor of the Union Hotel, formerly the King George Hotel, a man Rip didn't recognize, came barreling out, demanding to know what this guy was doing brandishing a gun while being flanked by a crowd. And on election day, Rip narrowed his eyes and stroked his foot-long gray beard one that he really should have noticed sooner, saying a couple things. One, these people were just following along laughing at him. He didn't know what their deal was. And two, what was an election? He was a loyal subject of the king, God bless him. So there's a wrong thing to say in post-revolutionary America. And then there was that. A group of men yelled out that he was a spy, a royalist sympathizer. They took out their rifles and said that he'd be sorry and like three to five minutes. These things took forever to load. Rip threw up his hands and said that he meant no harm. He sits here and smokes like every day, like it was his job if he had one of those. What happened to Nicholas Vetter, the man Rip knew as the owner of the inn? Somebody in the crowd said that he died, what, like 18 years ago? There was a wooden tombstone in the churchyard that used to tell all about him, but that's rotted and gone too. They should really get on that before he's completely forgotten. Brom Dutcher? Rip asked. Ah, the proprietor knew that one. He had died in the war at the Battle of Stony Point. Or he drowned off the coast. Regardless, he never came back. Van Bummel? The schoolmaster? Rip said, wide-eyed. And just now beginning to think that something strange had happened last night. Everyone in the crowd smiled. They knew him. He went off to war too, but he came back. He was now in Congress. Rip began to tremble a bit. And what of Rip Van Winkle? There was a collective groan and pursing of lips. Oh, yeah, right there. Rip spun around to see himself. It was him, exactly as he had been on the day he had left for the mountains, napping against a tree. Rip rushed over and shook the man awake, demanding to know his name. The man? reacting in the same way that all of us would react to a strange old man who hadn't brushed his teeth in 20 years, shaking us awake, shrieked. 
But when the shock wore off, another settled in. The man trembled as he looked into the eyes of the older man, one that he hadn't seen in 20 years. Rip? A woman shouted, and both men winced, looking up at the young woman who had come storming into the square. Like her mother before her, 20 odd years ago, a realization dawned on Rip, and he turned back to the man by the tree. Junior? And then Rip turned to the woman. The way she had said Rip made Rip cringe, like he had heard that sound before. But Rip exhaled when he saw that it wasn't her, but someone that looked so much like his wife, a young woman with a baby in her arms. Rip narrowed his eyes and stroked his beard. What was the young woman's name? She said that it was Judith, Judith Gardinier. Rip sighed. And your father? She said that she never really knew her father. She guessed that he went out for a pack of loose pipe tobacco 20 years ago and never came back. He took his gun into the woods and disappeared. His dog came home and waited at the door for 10 years in a super sad Futurama-like montage until he died. But they never knew what happened to Rip, whether he died in some accident or was carried away by natives. She never knew him. She was just two when he left. Rip could barely contain the tears. Here was his little girl, all grown up with children of her own. And his boy, his boy was just like him. Then, he asked a question that had been on his mind since he realized he had slept for 20 years. A question that chilled his bones. Rip became serious. It was a question he had feared the answer to. What of the girl's mother? Judith swallowed hard. Yeah. It was just last year. The stress of raising two children alone in revolutionary America finally took its toll. She died of a brain aneurysm while in an argument with some guy at the market. Rip exhaled. Oh, oh, thank goodness. Judith cocked her head. Oh, that's, you know, a horrible thing to say. Rip, too relieved, said, no, I mean, Yes, but no, because get this, Judith, I am your father. Judith didn't believe it. Rip Jr. almost believed it. And the town was pretty sure that this hairy guy who came out of the forest in the old, dirty clothes reeking of alcohol probably wasn't a mysterious figure from the village's storied past until a writer of said storied past came hobbling down the road. Now, it said that Rip didn't recognize anyone in the village. And even though it was only 20 years, you have to think that with a decreased life expectancy, coupled with the fact that pretty much everyone Rip's age went off to fight in the Revolutionary War, it's not completely unbelievable that only one guy in their village would recognize the elder Rip. The son of the old historian, Peter Vanderdonk, slowly advanced down the road, cane in hand, at the ripe old age of like 55. Vanderdonk immediately recognized and verified that it was, in fact, Rip Sr. Furthermore, when Rip told his story to the still pretty skeptical audience, Vanderdonk corroborated that as well. Being a historian, he could definitively say that the Catskill Mountains had always been haunted by strange beings. Duh. But there was a story to lend even more credence to Rip's account. The Hudson River was named for a Dutch explorer by the name of Hendrik Hudson, aka Henry Hudson. And he would come to the Catskills every 20 years 
to keep a vigil with the crew of his ship, the one that would later mutiny and abandon him to his death on the shores of Hudson Bay, a detail not mentioned in the story. Anyway, he would bring liquor and ninepins, and they would all celebrate together for a night. Exactly 40 years ago, Vanderdonk's father had once heard them playing in the woods, with sounds like thunder whenever they knocked over the pins. But it was morning before he chanced on the valley where he thought he heard them. It was the exact place where Rip had found the solid rock wall. The gathered listeners nodded. Well, that's a lie. A well-told one. But they preferred to believe that the irresponsible man prone to wandering off and abandoning his family had, get this, wandered off and abandoned his family for 20 years. And just concocted a story about getting drunk with a bunch of Dutch bowlers so the village didn't think he was the absolute worst. Judith believed Rip, though. Junior did too. Kind of, he was already napping again. And Judith brought Rip back to her home and introduced him to her husband, a stout farmer, and her other children. She showed Rip his room, one that had sat empty since Dame Van Winkle died last year. He laid his hand on Judith's shoulder. That was truly a tragedy. Could he see her grave, though? Just to be sure. So, Rip had fast-forwarded 20 years, from a time when he was expected to be productive and provide, until he was at an age when a man could do nothing with impunity, when no one was expecting him to get up and work and till the land, but instead just asked him to play with the children and spend time with his friends, free from the, as Rip put it, tyranny of Dame Van Winkle. Rip was more than happy to oblige. He leaned back and crossed his fingers behind his head. He was finally living the dream. All's well that ends well. But his son-in-law, who sat next to him, was wide-eyed. You abandoned your family, his daughter's husband remarked. The stress of your presence and then your absence caused your wife to die of an aneurysm. Your son is exactly like you in all the worst ways. Almost everyone you knew, the entire world, was better off without you. Rip's son-in-law continued, but Rip just covered his face with his hat. All's well that ends well. As a little follow-up to the story, Washington Irving, with no chip on his shoulder, ends the tale, saying that when men of the village hear peals of thunder in the Catskills, it was the common wish of the henpecked husbands that they might have a drink out of Rip Van Winkle's flagon. And... I guess, abandon their family for two decades until their wives are dead and they can do nothing without being yelled at? That's the sentiment we're ending on? Awesome, 19th century literature. The story of Rip Van Winkle is sort of the American version of a story that quite literally spans the globe. In Ireland, there's the story of Tirnanog with Oisin and Naim. Tirnanog is the Celtic otherworld where Oisin, a human, arrives after being brought there by his fairy love. He spends three years there and wants to return to Ireland. His wife allows this, but warns him not to get off his horse. He falls off his horse, and before he can mount it again, he goes all last crusade and collapses into a pile of bones. Way back in episode 8, we talked about the story of Yurashimataro, the Japanese story where noted turtle helper, Yurashimataro, is whisked away to an underwater kingdom, where 300 years pass in three days, 
When he returns, he learns how he has passed into legend, though that story, like the Irish version, has a much more tragic ending than Rip Van Winkle, where Yurash Mataro doesn't listen to his new wife, opens a box containing the hundreds of years that have passed, and collapses into dust on the beach. I've actually read that, according to Japanese folklorist Lofkado Hearn, Irving wrote a different version of the Rip Van Winkle story, based on a Portuguese tale that sticks closer to Yurashi Mataro, just to show you how ubiquitous the story of someone leaving and coming back to a world that has changed in their absence has been. The funny thing is, that to Western audiences, the story of Yurashi Mataro, which predates Rip Van Winkle by like hundreds of years, is known as the Japanese Rip Van Winkle. Next week, it's our annual Halloween episode, with a story I have been sitting on for eight months, because it's the perfect Halloween story. It's a supposedly true story from medieval Scotland about an insatiable monster that haunts the forests. If you'd like to support the show beyond leaving a review or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a Nutella sweatshirt, a sweatshirt that looks like a jar of Nutella, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of this show that don't make your belly look like it's Nutella. I mean, my belly looks the way it does in part because of Nutella, but that's a different thing. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Polong from Malaysia. The Polong is the best friend slash child slash communicable disease that you never knew you needed. Malaysian witches can form the Polong from the blood of a murdered man. Stupid me was reading this and was like, well, if they find a dead body, how do they know it was a murder... Oh, nope, okay, I got it. Anyway, they top off the bottle with the blood and perform a spell that can take up to two weeks, which sounds like a long time, but I guess it's probably not if you're making a person. When the witch hears a chirping from inside the bottle, they need to stick their finger in and let the polong bite it and drink her blood, because that way the bond will be sealed and the polong will never turn against the witch. In fact, that's the only way the polong gets her sustenance, from drinking the blood of witch mom. The polong is essentially just a one inch tall woman that lives in a bottle. When she's not on assignment for the witch, that's where you can find her. It's like a sad genie. She does have magic though, and if you're wondering what jobs a witch sends her on, well, none of them are good. The polong's usual job is to pair with another one of the witch's familiars, cut into the side of a human, and just jump in and start causing trouble, including sickness, insanity, possession, and death. A person who's believed to be ill because of the polong will have unexplained bruises on their body and blood around their mouth. Because nothing's ever easy, it's resistant to magic and really hard to catch. But if you do get one and know some super powerful magic, you can get it to turn on its witch and tell you her name, which is impressive because as the witch is basically the polong's only source of sustenance, it's a death sentence for the polong as well. That being said, take it with a grain of salt. Surprisingly, the tiny demon that murders on behalf of her witch mom, well, she might lie to you. Want to keep the polong at bay? Black pepper. That, mixed with some oil and garlic, which sounds like a great dipping sauce, by the way, is a way to keep the polong at bay. I don't know how or why, but if it keeps an inch-tall monster from running around inside of me, you know, I'd be willing to give it a try. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. 
Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.